0: Welcome to the Investment Manager Podcast. We're here to help you learn more about a wide variety of investment managers, their theories, and their investment outlook in order to challenge your own. My guest on today's show is Dede Ayerson. Dede is the founder and CEO of Jenga Investment Partners, a global investment company leading the next generation of investors. He's also the author of Global Outperformers, a study of the top performing global listed companies returning more than 1,000% in 10 years. Join me as we discuss early investing in Nigeria, how to look for 10 baggers over the next decade, and Dede's relatively unsung investment heroes, one of which has a surprising story about overcoming seemingly insurmountable hurdles. All opinions expressed by the podcast host and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or business interests both the host and guests, may maintain positions in the securities discussed during this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Now, you look very youthful, Dede. How old are you? I'm 23. So this is a very early venture for you, I suppose. I'd also learn more about your background and life growing up. Tell me about your early days.
1: I started my journey into the world of investing at 10. What happened was that my parents had encouraged my siblings and I to make long-term investments in the public market. Uh, I mean, they gave us a newspaper, which had a list of about 150 listed Nigerian companies, and I literally picked the first three I could recognize. And then five years after that period, this was in 2009, five years after that, two of them had more than tripled. So one of them, Nestor Nigeria, had grown fivefold in value. And then one of them, which was a Nigerian bank, had fallen by half. And I decided to revisit why they changed so much in value. Why did some go up? Why did some go down? And then I didn't really know how a balance sheet operated or how it would function. And so I looked back and then that was really my introduction to the world of real investing. So for example, Nestle in Nigeria had grown their earnings by 18% per year. They had operating margins of 24% and they were valued at eight times peer ratio. So that's really why it went up, the fundamentals. And that was my insight into the world of value and growth investing. And then after that experience, I just got hooked on it. So I said, oh wow, this is so fun. You get to really understand companies. Nestle, they made a product called Milo, which is a for chocolate brand, it's really big in Nigeria. And it's something I drink every day. But during that process of reading the annual report, you just get to pick up so much about the company, the strategy. Then they were moving from tin cans to cube cans so they could improve the price per gram. So that was some, that was an insight I got from reading the annual reports back then. Uh, that thrill, I guess that enjoyment just spread. And then in university, I started an investment club with friends. and uh, that was how Jenga got started. And after university, I switched into an incorporated company and then got an FC authorization
0: last year. And that's where we are today. In terms of parental influence, you were seemingly handed the stock pages of the newspaper. Were your parents actively involved in investing?
1: I mean, my parents, my, my parents had a full-time role. They were retail investors. My dad had bought four stocks and he held all four of them for about 30 years. So one of them was less in Nigeria, another one was Guinness, Nigeria, and they did really well in terms of stock price. And for him, he wasn't a professional in the sense of either CFA or anything. He just really understood four companies and invested in them. So that was really my introduction and how we all got started.
0: What inspired you to get into the industry overall? I mean, If we think about early influences, you've seen wild stock moves. I suppose your parents are investors as well in a retail sense. Was it the done thing?
1: I guess where the points of guidance came in was the exposure to the world of investing. But if you're going to take investing from a hobby to building a company out of it, there has to be a, some el- element of, I guess, a personal drive and dedication towards it. And there's not really much a parent can do in that segment because it takes a lot of commitment. But when I was in university, I had a plan of spending some years in investment banking and another group of years in, consulted, and then moved into private equity, and then finally started my own fund. That was an initial plan. But I came across so many investors while I was reading books. So in the U.S., there was John Rogers, who was the first Black mutual fund owner. He started his company, Aerial Investments, I think in 1983, at the age of 24. And there was Bill Ackman, who runs Preston Square, who started Gotham Capital at 25. Warren Buffett was 25 when he started Ken Griffin was 19 when he unofficially started Citadel. So, I mean, I just saw so many examples of people who had started their companies very early and I asked them, I asked myself, you know, why have these guys started so young and why were they successful, I guess, over time? And for me, it kind of boiled down to, I guess, four things. One was they had a really good curiosity for stock or their securities. Ken Griffin, for example, he talks a lot about how university you skip lectures. And then you put the satellite on top of the accommodation building to get them minute by minute flows of data. And that's real dedication. So, you know, for me, I saw this passion, this curiosity, and at the same time, there was an entrepreneurial element. So before Jenga, you know, I had lots of side hustles in universities and I was building my entrepreneurial side. And I guess starting Jenga was, was that opportunity to merge all those areas of life, so the curiosity aspect, the passion aspect. The entrepreneurial aspect into one thing, and I mean that was just really how we started.
0: Were you ever tempted to join an asset manager to gain experience prior to forming your own company? I was tempted,
1: but what happened was that I started an investment club, and it wasn't really something big. We had just like twenty thousand pounds, friends and family who put money together. But six months in, I was just—I kind of got so addicted to, I guess, looking at annual reports and going through the Bloomberg terminal we had on our campus. And I was writing reports and sending it to hedge fund managers in the city, and some were reading it and giving me their feedback. Some would make investments on that. But I, I guess I enjoyed the autonomy that came with starting your own fund and being able to be fully independent and, I guess, pick your own fund style. And so that was really why I decided to build Jenga from scratch without going through another asset manager.
0: You have a degree in accounting and finance, but I suspect that your knowledge spans far beyond that. What would you attribute your early stage knowledge to in terms of reading? You've mentioned particular influences, for example, but this, to me, your level of knowledge and what you've demonstrated so far with the case study you've conducted suggests to me that there's far wider reading involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in investing, there are lots of ways to invest and there are lots of ways to be successful in investing. I... I'm more in the fundamental bucket where, you know, you look at the company's uh, history, you're trying to understand what's going on, and you see how they fit into the world. You look at the valuation. So there's quite a wide range of things you have to consider. Accounting, of course, is a big part. I spend, I mean, you're not going, I'm never going to make an investment without looking at the financial statement. So it's a really big part of investing, but it goes beyond just the number. So going back to, I guess, my example with Nestle, Nigeria, a huge reason of why they did so well with the intangibles and the intangible aspects where it goes beyond the numbers. So in terms of the brand, the brand value, you're thinking about marketing, you're thinking about psychology of what Milo has in with consumers in Nigeria. You're also thinking about the economy because then Nigeria was growing fairly well. So there was room for them to expand into new regions. And that's not always the case. So you have to think about the economy and the macro environment. And then also, I guess, just history as well. So I think fundamental investing spans lots of disciplines. One of the e-mentors I really love is Charlie Munger. And I mean, there's no one who's an exemplary of, you know, that wide mental model and wide um, range of disciplines when it comes to investing. That's, that's my philosophy on investing, it's really trying to understand lots of things and then make decisions that really matter.
0: Now, prior to commencing with your study, tell me about your thesis and what led to you conducting a study on global outperformers.
1: So I originally wanted to do the global outperformance study three years ago when I was just finishing university. I started writing, but then I realized I just didn't have the skill set to finish it off. And then last year, when the markets had cooled down, it was more practical to write about companies that had returned tenfold. So 10 baggers or 1,000% in 10 years. What we did in the book was that we split the analysis into three areas. So one was the factor research, where we looked at key factors like multiples, profitability, margins, and tried to understand what investors are paying for the companies. And then the second area was that we looked at it from a geographic view, which was more qualitative in analysis. So we looked at why India did so well, why Sweden was number one in Europe, you know, why Africa didn't have that many companies, why Asia was the vast majority at 60%. And just trying to understand how the world has evolved through the lens of the best performing companies. Then the third area was that we looked at it from an industry lens, quite similar to the geography, but then we looked at it from the 11 GICS industries. So information technology, healthcare, why healthcare did well. Was it because of COVID or was it because of high multiples? What can we learn from the healthcare industry? that sort of thing. And at the end, we then put together 10 lessons from the case study that cuts across all those three areas. For me, the reason why I really wanted to do the study was threefold. So one was commercial awareness. When you're looking at 400 plus companies and you're trying to understand why they've done really well, you learn a ton about how industries change or how businesses evolve. And for me, there was just so much to learn about the world. A A lot of commercial awareness knowledge gained from doing it. Second was to be a better investor. I'm a big fan of learning from the past and learning from successful investments and also investments that didn't work out. And I think spending some time reviewing what has worked, one can become a better investor by learning from the past. And third was, of course, to share what I'd learned with uh, people out there. So that was why we published it and received lots of feedback from people and hear about what they were expecting versus what they actually saw in the book. And uh, you know, just share and bounce off ideas there.
0: In terms of multiples, let's drill down into that because there was a key focus on EV to EBIT, so enterprise value to earners before interest and tax. Effectively, it's a slightly different multiple than we would hear about usually. So very commonly we hear about PEs and price to sales. Why do you choose to focus on those metrics?
1: I'm a big fan of the enterprise value metrics because they include debt and the minus cash. So basically the reward companies that have much stronger balance sheets compared to the P-E ratio, which just looks at the market. So that way, I think you have a slightly better reflection of the true health of a company. And then also the problem with earnings is that it goes beyond the operational metrics and the balance sheet. So for example, interest charges or tax differences can really impact what they earnings would be at the net income level. But when you look at it from an EBIT level, you have a slightly better idea of the operational metrics when you're looking at companies. So when you're comparing across companies in so many different markets, I think the EB over EBIT makes a lot more sense than the peer ratio. What happened last year and the year before in the market was that people were making stock purchases at really high multiples. And what I was trying to do was really understand... Do these multiples make sense? Does paying 40 times earnings or 40 times EV over EBIT for a company that's growing 5% per year earnings, boys and software make sense? And to me, from doing that research, it was so clear that it didn't make sense because what we realized or what we saw was that 49% of the 446 companies that returned tenfold had an EV over EBIT of less than 10 times. People paid less than 10 times earnings to compound these really good businesses. And I mean, when you take that into the context of where the market is, I mean, the market is currently at 18 times, the MSI World Index is on 18 times peer ratio. You realize, you know, you really have to think really cheaply. and You're looking for big discounts in the market. So I mean, that was a learning point from a multiples view.
0: So the message there, the key takeaway is that price does matter.
1: Yeah, price does matter. Everyone, I mean, I speak to people and they're like, yeah, of course the price does matter. But I mean, when when there are moments of great going on in the market, it's very easy to, you know, lose focus on that. And I think the whole purpose of the book for me especially is that when you go through another period of euphoria in the market, just going back to that book and just trying to see how things do turn out because things do happen quite often. The cycles move up and down five to ten years every time. Having that book is just a reminder that, you know, you really have to focus on the multiples. It's not about what people in the market are paying right now is about what makes sense. Um, so yeah, price matters. That's the key, key methods there.
0: The last decade was largely heralded as the decade of growth. Yet your study suggests that there is value out there to be had and that in choosing that value that actually you gain better performance. So is it a question or is it as simple as growth and value overall, or what other factors really come into the fold?
1: be honest, I've never really understood this value versus growth issue in, I guess, in public markets because, I mean, going back to my first investment ever, and I looked at Nestle Nigeria, it was a company that was at eight times P-E ratio, but was also growing 18% per year over a period of five, six years. And it rose fivefold in value. And you look at it from a quality view, it had EBIT margins of around 20 to 30% during that period. And I asked myself, the investors in Nestle, where they value or where the growth or where the quality? And for me, I mean, I think they're all sides of the same coin. And when I look back at the uh, research we did with global outperformers, it confirmed that idea of that one doesn't really have to separate value or growth or quality from each other and stick to just one bucket. You just really have to look for companies that offer you all three things. So, I mean, a good example of a popular company that was there was Sony Group. So Sony Group had fallen into losses in 2012, and it was trading at, I think, 0.2 times EV over revenue at that period. If you looked at it right then, you'll have said, oh yeah, this is value. But then what happened was that they had gone from loss-making to profitability, and they I think they grew earnings by about 15% over the next few years because of the performance of the PlayStation, and they moved more into the content aspect of gaming consoles, so that increased their margins. If you looked at it three years later, you looked at it as a growth company. I mean, depending on where you're looking at it, kind of skewed either to value or growth. And it was the same thing across so many sectors. You know, semiconductors was a really huge part of the outperformers. I think about 49 companies across the 446 were from the semiconductor industry. And if you looked at it between 2002 and 2012, it looked like value. And then after 2012, it looked like growth because the sector did really well when mobile computing became a thing. So overall, I think one just has to focus on all the factors, look at the multiples, pay low, look at the growth, look for companies that have very good double digit plus earnings growth over the next three, four, five years and further, and then look for companies that can also earn profitability. So another thing we learned was that 82% of all the outperformers were profitable at the start of 2012. So the idea of investing in loss-making companies that would never turn a profit and have high multiples just doesn't work as well.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Sony, and I will get back to multiples in a moment, but I had a look at the book. I was fortunate enough to receive a copy, so thank you for that. Among only seven large cap performers that have grown by a thousand percent or more was the Sony Group. Now, I thought about that more holistically. Japan as a market trades on low PEs and has done for years. There are pockets of value definitely there. So did you view Sony in this case as a turnaround or was it really a separate growth story because of a change of business model?
1: So Sony was a turnaround, but the problem with turnarounds is that when they start their turnaround, bump turnarounds can transition into some form of growth. So we saw that in a lot of examples where a company might be cyclical, then they have bad management, then it becomes a turnaround. Either they go into a new business model and then it becomes growth. So over the ten years, it will switch into different categories. I guess the key thing from an investor is to recognize when it's shifting categories, or when it's going into a new category, or when it's at risk of falling into another category. I think that's a key area for investors and understand what exactly you're paying for. Seven companies were large caps, and I was quite surprised about that. I mean, when you get seven companies out of four hundred forty-six were large caps, I asked myself why exactly. Am I spending so much time looking at large caps? I mean, it's the thing of numbers where it's easier for a company to grow from 100 million to 1 billion than to grow from 100 billion to 1 trillion. The 1 trillion market cap thing is a really a new phenomena. which, um, I mean, you will probably see more of it in the future, but it's really a new phenomenon, you know, expecting the company to grow from 1 trillion to 10 billion, it just becomes harder just due to the law of large numbers.
0: So back to multiples for a moment, most would expect that if we are looking for 10 baggers over a decade or any time period, really, a 10 bagger is always welcome, we would probably look for fast earners in terms of revenue growth and earnings growth. Is it necessary to have fast earners? What did you find from your study was most common amongst the super outperformers?
1: Oh, yes, the super outperformers had growth. So we, we didn't try to find if you know the multiples or the growth was more important because it's it's quite based on opinion. but what we saw was that the, the same companies that were valued 10 times below were also growing earnings quite fast. I mean I think the average was about 15% earnings growth over the whole 10-year period. So you, you saw three things. you saw multiples expansion where a company would go from five times earnings to maybe 15 times or 20 times because the business model is a lot more stable or the market trust management even more, or they've gone into new categories. The second thing you saw was that the multiples were low, of course. And the third thing was that there was endings growth over the whole decade. There were lots of so many interesting examples. If you look at at the agricultural sector, where you wouldn't expect many fast growers, in the salmon industry, I think there were about seven companies where they grew endings by more than 15% over the the decade, and they were outperformers. And they're in an industry that isn't necessarily called a fast growth industry. So yes, earnings growth is very important. I think 15% is the benchmark, but it's safer to have that margin of safety where you're looking for something that can do 20% but ends up doing 15.
0: Let's look at the size factor as well. We've talked already about the fact that there were only seven large cap outperformers from the dataset. In terms of size itself, there were 63% of the subset group that were nano caps. So On this basis, that is $50 million of market cap or less. In terms of investability, what's your view on allocation towards size? Has this changed your view? Would you allocate towards the smaller areas of the market now, knowing what you know? Yes. I I mean, I've always been a fan of the smaller caps because
1: my, throughout my investment history, it's been the segment where I found the better companies for better value. Again, you know, you don't have institutions. Looking at those companies with under research, don't have much sell-side coverage because it's less profitable for them. Founders might own 50% of the outstanding shares and it's just too liquid. So there are lots of things that keep it undervalued. But then once it grows a little bit, um, you know that coverage increases and the share float also increases in size and then it becomes much more attractive for the larger um, investor. I think it should always be considered. But there are some things to be worried about or to be careful about. So, one, again, there's a bit of survival bias from our study and it's something I wrote about where you only look at companies that actually survive the 10 years. Now, the painful part about nanocaps is that a lot more companies in the nanocap segment go bankrupt. So, you know, the first thing as an investor is you want to be able to actually figure out what's a real business and what's the fake business. And that's where, you know, things like accounting is important and, you know, all sorts of analysis and due diligence is important. But the other area, I guess, to the nano cap segment is, again, growth is quite important. Now, if you're thinking about an allocation like for an institution who is managing like 3 billion or plus AUM, and you're trying to pick 10 to 15 stocks, it's, just, it's going to be impossible to buy companies that are 50 million. And I guess this is a segment where like the retail or the small investor has a really big advantage because you can go into these companies when they're still small when they're under-followed, I guess, hold them over a 10-year period. And then when they get much bigger, you know, the institutions start calling you for your research and they want to know more about the companies. So I guess that's the lesson, I guess,
0: with, with the nanocaps. Now, in terms of geographic allocation, tell me what you found to be true in this study. Because we think about GDP, we think about the macro factors and the areas of growth over the last 10 years. Certainly lots of hindsight bias in that because we can all think about the major economies, but what did you find to be true in terms of geographic allocation and where the 10 baggers were found? What
1: we did was that we sorted all the countries by the number of outperformers, and then we also sorted it relative to the number of listings and the size of the GDP. So what we wanted to see was, we wanted to see which countries where efficient um, outperformers. So where I guess the GDP might be small, or the number of listings might be small, but then still end up producing lots of outperformers. And I mean, in Europe, Sweden was a big one. So Sweden had 20 outperformers, less than 10 million population, much smaller market size when you compare it to Germany and France, but then it was still the best. And the reason why, I I mean, I don't want to go too much information in Sweden, but I mean, the reason why Sweden did so well, was you had so much innovation in, you know, in the country, and not just innovation for, I guess, the Swedish market, but also innovation where they, the products were exported into other regions. So lots of the healthcare companies in Sweden and the Nordic region entirely were actually making their revenues from the US uh, and also from China and Germany. So they were big exporters. And then also they were quite acquisition focused. So they, were, they, they knew how to allocate capital quite well, especially compared to the rest of Europe. Uh, So that example has really given me some insight into why one might want to pay attention to Sweden, but it's not that easy because what works the last decade might not work this decade. And a, a good example is Japan, because Japan between 2002 and 2012 had zero outperformers, there were no outperformers entirely. And then between 2012 and 2022, there were 49. So it was the third highest in the world. So it literally went from zero to 49. So the lesson isn't just to look, just look at the last decade and say, okay, yeah, this did really well. So we're going to look here is to put things into perspective. And now when you put things to perspective with Japan, the reason why Japan had zero, then had 49 was because of the effects of the bubble that it went through in the 1980s and the 1990s where it experienced a lost decade. You know, no one really, no one really wanted to invest in Japan anymore. And, you know, if you look at the headlines, people were saying, yeah, Japan is now an investable. And what happened was that the multiples dropped so low. So the valuations of the companies we're looking at in Japan, like Sony, for example, was just so low. And after a while, um, earnings comes out, you know, you see growth, founders decide to build businesses that are solving the problems that they, I guess, the country facing, like, you know, aging population or lack of growth, the sort of things, innovation, and they build wonderful businesses. So we saw a lot of businesses that we're actually addressing. Issues that are quite focused in Japan, so the aging population. So healthcare was good in Japan. Consulting businesses that were focused on helping other businesses with M and A, you and know, growth ideas was also quite good. So it's all about putting things into perspective from a geography view. I mean, I guess the final lesson from the review was that it's very important to look at places where there's some of fear, or some of a lot of optimism and, and quite a lot of fear. So. Greece did as well as the Netherlands and, Sweden and Switzerland combined. And if you go back to Greece in 2012, if, uh, we, we had like screenshots of some of the headlines and, you know, the market said Greece was uninvestable and you know, there was a great debt crisis was there. I think there was like an FT article that said, you know, Greece was actually going to disappear and Germany might have to do like a whole takeover. I mean, you know, all these like, you know, crazy headlines. And if you go back to the facts and you look at the companies that outperformed, So one of them was Hellenic. Telecom, which is like the largest telecom company in Greece, they were trading at, they were trading below the book value of one of their subsidiaries. So they have the Greek telecoms and they have investments in Romania. And if you look at the market cap of those subsidiaries, Hellenic was trading below the asset value compared to the whole company It was at 0.2 times book value, trading at four times peer ratio. And this was a company that, that was profitable. It wasn't growing, but it was very profitable. I was a market leader, was benefiting from the transition from 3G to 4G, was investing in cables and all sorts of things. So, I mean, that was an example and a lesson for me as an investor, but as a value investor, it should be willing to embrace regions where, you know, there's some fear of pessimism, but really focus, I guess, on the companies where, you know, there's profitability, there's some earnings growth, and it's really different from like the headlines are, are painting.
0: We talked very specifically about factors here, micro factors up to the commonly used factors overall. In terms of the quantitative approach, could we blend all of those factors, build a screen and take that approach for the next 10 years? What's your view?
1: It wouldn't be one screen to do it because I, I spend so much time doing A to Z screens and it takes so much time of my day. And I was really hoping I would be able to build just one screen that would help me find all the future outperformers of, or, or of the next decade. But the truth is, is that there is no easy way out and one just has to do the legwork. I mean, we, we had companies trading below cash and if you try and screen on an EV over revenue, they wouldn't even come up on that screen because the enterprise value is negative. So like in the UK, Jet2, the airline group was one of them. They were trading below cash. So they don't have a, a positive enterprise value and they wouldn't come up on the screen. On the other hand, you had companies like Sony where in 2012, they became loss-making. So if you did a screen where you could, where you cut off all the loss-making companies, you would miss out on companies like Sony Group or the semiconductor companies, which were unprofitable in 2011 and then turned profitable in 2012. Same thing with growth. You looked at, uh, okay, if you said, yes, all outperformers are growing 15%, and then you tried to do a screen on all the companies that grew 15% over the last three years, the past can be very different from the future. So you don't really build a, a good screen out of that. And I guess that's, that was the painful, I will say that was a painful learning point that, that came up from doing the whole research where there's really no substitute to, you know, doing the legwork. What an investor can do is to build several screens that I guess would cover the different types of outperformance. So for example, one of the things we learned was that half of the companies had an EV over revenue of less than one times. So I guess a screen that starts with that would be a good way to start looking for potential outperformers. There were some that were trading below cash. So you build a screen for below cash. And there were some that were just cyclical companies. So you actually have a builded screen with loss-making market leaders. And then you start from there to look for companies that could be cyclical. And I guess in the next four or five years, the industry dynamics will change.
0: What's your view on qualitative analysis in this sense? Would it aid you? Would it hinder you in terms of looking for global outperformers?
1: Oh, yes. The big chunk of the book was qualitative research. So, you know, quality, the, the quant research was about 30 pages, and then the qualitative research was about 200 pages. So it was quite skewed towards the qualitative side. A very good example of the importance of qualitative research is, I mean, if you look at China, so there was a company called the sports. And Sports, they're like a sports apparel, just like Nike and Adidas. It's unknown in the Western world, but it's actually the third largest sports apparel company in the world. What happened in 2012 was that Sports, I think it fell about by 40%. And if you did a screen and tried the metrics, it, it looked like there were problems here. But what happened in the whole industry, the Chinese market had lots of sports apparel startups. And it had grown just too quickly, too fast, and inventory was so high. So there was a huge period of consolidation. This was after the Olympics in 2008, so 2010, 2012. There was a huge consolidation, and lots of companies went bankrupt. And then the very good companies like ANTA, what happened with them was that their profits fell by maybe 30%, 40% over that period, so 2010 to 2012. If you only looked at the numbers, you would have thought this was a company that was going through lots of problems, why are endings earnings falling 50% all of a sudden? And you'll have probably screened that out. But then if you do the qualitative research, where you actually look at the intangibles. Now, if you go back to Anta, you go back to the store size, what they did was that they closed down lots of inefficient stores. They changed their whole store model. They upgraded their inventory process. They started doing online. So they moved into T more, So they switched into an asset lighter scale. They built franchise model, fr- franchise stores in China in tier two and third-tier cities. So they're making lots of behind-the-scenes investment. They also acquired a brand called Filler. There, uh, there was a bit of goodwill impairments there. But if you look at the brand and what they were trying to do was that they were trying to move into the more premium market of sports apparel. I mean, there's a lot of qualitative things that were going on in Andersport. But if you didn't think about this or look into this, you'll have totally missed out on how this company would actually growing, even though it was reducing in profits. And what happened over the next 10 years after 2012, was that they compounded their earnings by 20%. The PE ratio went from five times to about 25, 26 times. They were a multi-bagger. Um, so, I mean, that's the importance of qualitative research. And I mean, same thing can be applied with Sony Group and most of all the companies that outperformed. So the qualitative is very important as an investor.
0: Based on your research, let's design a perfect company to buy and hold for the next decade. Share your thoughts on what attributes you'd look for, and they could be qualitative or quantitative. Share your views on industry or sector placement, and also if geographic location really is an important tailwind.
1: Okay, this is a really tough question, but I'll I'll give it an attempt. I think the first thing I'll try and do is I'll try and segment all the companies into five buckets. So turnaround, cyclicals. Compounders, special situations and spin-offs. What I would then try to do is that for each bucket, I'll try and look for a company will fit into each bucket. So with turnarounds, for example, I guess the best place to go fishing during industries where there's a downturn or industries where or, or countries where there's some form of fear that I guess eroding what, you know, the, the multiples market wants to give. So. A region, from a geographic view, I think one area where we might be able to find these sort of things actually is China. So with China, there are lots of noise going on at the moment. You have the US-China trade war uh, and lots of foreign investors are a bit more wary about investing in China. And then you also had what happened with Alibaba and lots of tech giants, where those, I guess, on the clampdown on some of them. But there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of pessimism towards that region in terms of outperformers. But if you really go much deeper into the whole markets, so the small cap segments, there will be companies that are trading 0.2, 0.3 times book value. They are profitable or just unprofitable, and they're able to grow 15 to 20% over the next 10 years. One, they have a really big market. So you think about the retail market in China, it is 1 billion plus people, uh, 1 billion plus people to feed, 1 billion plus people to, I guess, sell clothes to. So it has a huge addressable market. So that would be, I guess, one area I would look for. I would also look for areas where there's a long period of growth ahead. So you think about solar energy, for example. So I think from the study, we found about 40 of the outdoor farmers were from the solar energy industry, and many Chinese companies, of course. So I think that would be somewhere interesting um, to look for the next 10 years, because I don't think we're going to be using less solar now than in 10 years time, be now when lots of countries are... Having mandates to, you know, reduce their fossil fuel and cut their carbon emissions, so I think those sort of things will expand. Another segment where I'll possibly look at are in areas where there are big structural trends of future growth ahead. So you think about areas like cell based therapy, you think about areas like solar energy, you think about areas of tech, IT services, and software. I'll look at those areas as well, but I'll be careful about two things. One, of course, is valuation. So remember the companies we found from the outperformers, half of them had EV over EBIT of less than 10 times. And even though there's been some decline in these areas, you still have companies trading at 25, 30 times with potential growth of 15%. So I'll really look at the business models where there's some form of ability to build a brand, build a mood towards it, uh, and increase the switching cost, and also pay really low multiples for them. So... Those are the areas I'll really be focusing on for the future 10 years.
0: Changing tracks now, let's talk about the hurdles that you've had to overcome in asset management so far because you created, you founded a company of your own at a very young age, which I admire. I think that's tremendous. What kind of hurdles have you had to overcome so far in asset management?
1: There's been quite a few hurdles. So I mean, when I started the whole process of I guess switching Django from an investment club into an incorporated company, I was twenty one. And I mean, if you if you reach out to, I guess, a lawyer or someone that you want to build an asset management firm at the age of 21, no one's really going to take you seriously. So it took quite a bit of convincing to get people to, I guess, help you out. So that was, a I guess, that was the first big hurdle I faced. And then, of course, you're trying to raise funds for your fund, and people want to see a track record of possibly even 5, 10 years, 15 years, and you started start there with a, I guess, two-year track record and three-year track record takes a lot of effort, I guess, to really get people to understand what you're trying to do. Looking back, I really enjoyed these huddles because from a real opportunity to improve who I was, how I presented things, how I spoke about my ideas, actually building a track record, speaking to people, not giving up too easily. So I guess, I, mean, I guess that's the positive from overcoming these huddles. And to be honest, I don't think the huddles are going to end. Even when you're 40 and 50, you have to keep proving to people. I mean, you might have a good track record for five years, and the market turns on you one year, and then you underperform, and investors bail out. And once again, you have to do the same, proving yourself. So it's, it's an endless journey of huddles, and that's how I see it, even when I'm 50, 60, 70. And I'm just thinking about how many times people have doubted Warren Buffett uh, in his lifetime. I mean, there's someone who has a, pretty much the best track record in the history of investments. And two years ago, you know, people were saying he's old school, he's old now, he doesn't know what he's doing. And You know, he still has to quietly prove himself out with performance, which he has done. Look at, if you look at the recent, recent performance. So it's a never ending journey of huddles, but the key thing is having the grit and I guess having the motivation and the passion
0: to overcome them and improve yourself in the process. Tell me about the name Jenga. What's the origin of the name and what's your mission as a business?
1: When picking the name, I wanted something that reflected one, who I was, and two, what I was trying to build. I looked at what build meant in different languages, and then I came across Swahili. uh, To build is Kujenga, and I was like, oh, wow, this is a fun name. You know, there's a game called Jenga, quite popular, it's easy to pronounce, it's memorable, and it also means to build. Well, that was quite an easy pick for me, and I just added investment partners to to it. So that was how the name came about. The mission with Jenga is threefold. One, we try to outperform the benchmark, which is the MSCI World Index, and that's what we strive to do. It's quite hard because you look back through history, I think about seven in ten managers underperform over the long term. So it's quite a challenging hurdle to make, and that's what we want to achieve for our clients. The second mission is leading by example. That's across lots of things, um, from the culture we set, the culture that cares about its people and improving its people. So that's a really big focus all in Jenga in terms of what we try to do, especially when we have, you know, interns who in, and also myself too, constant improving, constant learning. And it's central to, it's, it's really central to our investment strategy. The third area is also leading by example to the industry. So in things, in, when you look at being accountable to ourselves and to our investors, having integrity and being trustworthy and being open with what we do, I think these are really important aspects of, you know, building an investment company. And again, this is our mission for the long term.
0: Who are your biggest inspirations in the investment industry? And that could be past or present.
1: I think the two I'll focus on today, one is Alan Gray and one is Laura Sloan. The reason why I'm focusing on them is because there are not many articles on both of them out there. So I think it's always good to add value to listeners. But Alan Gray, Alan Gray was a South African investor who built three different investment companies, Allen Gray South Africa, Allen Gray Australia, and another company called Orbis Investments, which is, I think, based in Bermuda, but then they originally started in London. And in the 90s, Allen Gray had, Obis was the number one performing global fund in the world. And in its first 30 years, Allen Gray South Africa had returned about 27%. So he had an outstanding track record. And the most impressive thing about Allen Gray is that He really built an investment company that, I guess, stood the test of time. And a lot of investment companies come and go. Lots of people set up funds and, you know, they go busts every now and later. And this was someone who built three different companies. For example, in South Africa, the investment industry was so small in the 1970s. And he took that risk, built a fund there. And now, I mean, they have the largest investment industry in Africa. And he's really set the pace in terms of the standards of investing. The other thing I liked about Alan Gray is that, like, he was a very good teacher, and wasn't just someone who I guess picked stocks and that was the end. He was a very good teacher, and lots of other successful fund managers were ex, you know, Alan Gray employees and obvious um, employees, and just shows so much about the culture and who he was, um, you know, before he passed away. And he's just someone I really look up to. The sad thing is that there are many public interviews of of him. Um, But there's one on Forbes where he spoke about, you know, some of his stock picks. This was in 2001 um, when they made a profit. They made a positive return during the tech bubble because it was quite contrarian as an investor. And I mean, I encourage anyone to read that. The other investor who really, really inspires me, I find as a high mentor, is Laura Sloat. She, She started investing in the 1960s. She was blind and no one really gave her an opportunity when she started off. Now, the really impressive, impressive thing about Laura Sloat was that if you look at our past interview, she always said that blindness is never a weakness for her, was never a huddle, and it was just a means to have a very good track record. And when you look at her of investing, it's quite unique. I mean, one thing she used to do was that she would listen to three different newspapers and have people, you know, read out articles and hand reports to her, and she would listen to like, you know, multiple multiple people at the same time, just trying to pick up facts and learning from them. I mean, she had, she built her own way of learning and her track record was amazing. I mean, she analyzed 20.1% in the 10 years to 1995. She made positive returns in tough years, like 1987, you know, when the market crashed. And then also during the tech bubble bust in 2000, she also made positive returns there. And she was quite value oriented in terms of, she looked for companies that, you know, were trading at you know, below book value or low multiples that also had growth potential. And she always stuck to that one strategy. So she never, you know, strayed away from picking stocks. She never dabbled in, you know, global macro, tried to do things that were outside her skill set or circle of competence. And for me, that's really admirable. And also she did it for a very long time. Investing from the 1960s to, you know, the late 2000s. It's very admirable to read her story. And again, I would encourage anyone out there, you know, to check the her interviews from the past
0: that I... It's clear you have a real passion for the investment industry. I think you have a lot of upside and I'm looking forward to following your journey as well. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Well, Thanks, Anthony, for having me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Investment Manager podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show.